Hello, Art Curious listeners, and welcome to Curious Talk. I am your host, Josh Dassel, of Art Curious's production partner, Kabunki, and I have this very, very cool honor of chatting with the Art Curious host, and truth be told, my wife, Jennifer Dassel. Hi, Jennifer. Hello, how are you? I'm doing great. This is uh, this is an interesting break from your usual studio and usual duties up here, up here to talk. How are you feeling? I'm feeling good and a little weird. It's, it's very exciting. Okay, so Jennifer, let's break down for the Art Curious listeners exactly what is this thing that we're calling Curious Talk, right? It's going to be this side project that uh, is created specifically for Art Curious listeners, where all of us, uh, myself included, get to learn more about our favorite podcast, our favorite episodes, and uh, what other listeners like us are talking about. Maybe we can get some new angles, some new information that didn't necessarily make it into the show, things that I wanted to talk about but didn't have time for, or even in some cases, some updates about things that we've talked about in the past. But unlike one of your traditional Art Curious episodes where you are taking us on this uh, incredible journey through some of the back corners of of art history, um, in this case, you get to be in the hot seat and uh, get to field a few questions of, of mine, maybe some from the listeners, and see if we can expand this Art Curious universe. Do I have that about right? Yep, let's do this. All right. So we are in season three. We're actually uh, at the end of season three, and uh, this season has been all about rivalries. Why was that chosen as your topic for this third season? It's really funny. One of the things that I was really interested in about a year or two ago was, do you remember when they had that Betty and Joan feud um, American... Not American Crime Story, but it was by uh, the same guy who does American Horror Story. Loved it. Yeah. And so I was really obsessed with this story about Betty Davis and Joan Crawford, who were these actresses who were working together on the same project, but were so against one another and just really pitted against one another by um, the studios and by one another, by their family, their friends, everything. And I kept thinking, oh, it would have been so interesting to see what would have actually happened if these women were actually friends instead of made out to be foes. And that's when I thought, well, you know what? Rivalries, that's just inherently a really good story. Having rivalries and having uh, uh, the, the, maybe the backbiting and maybe some of the intrigue that goes along with that for this season, I imagine has garnered some listener response. So tell me a little bit about uh, what have the listeners been saying? <laughs> for sure. It's been really fun because I've had people email me or send me tweets um, where after each episode, somebody would write in and say, you know, I really think that I'm a Turner or I really side with Michelangelo. It's been really interesting to see how people really feel like one a person in these rivalries was the victor or the victorious person. And also, um, a lot of people have been saying that they just felt like this was a real way to humanize these people that in a lot of situations were really, um, really put up on a pedestal. We think about people like Michelangelo as being almost godlike in their ability to create, but you find out that, man, he was just pretty human, just like the rest of us. He just also had a really good artistic talent. Well, speaking of Michelangelo and others, uh, as part of this season of Rivalries, uh, we had a season of eight episodes, and so what I'd love to be able to do today with you is to uh, maybe walk you through about half of those, talk about each one, and, and maybe find out some things that we didn't know before or get into some topics that didn't quite make air. So let's start with uh, episode one about Judith Leister and Franz Halls. Now, Leister is kind of this interesting example of she's a female artist she's in the netherlands it's the 17th century and i can't really think of another artist at least that comes to mind that really meets that description so 
talk to me a little bit about Judith and, and how rare were women as artists at that time at that place? So there were other women artists besides Judith Leister, but in general, you're right. There weren't a whole lot. Uh, for sure, art for a long time, even prior to the 17th century in the Netherlands, were facing back hundreds of years before that, art was really something that was seen as being under men's purview. It's something that we've talked about a little bit on the show before, where men really did everything that was deemed creative. They were the ones who were really the writers, anything that you can think of as being uh, a right-brained side of thing. Musicians. Musicians, absolutely. Women were really just sort of seen as the ones who were kind of behind the scenes taking care of the house because somebody had to raise the kids and somebody had to do whatever work was required to also pay the bills, you know, just to keep the family store running, for example. Uh, And so women really didn't have access to education, to learning things like being a painter as much as men did. They simply didn't have the time for the training. They had to be taking care of a lot of other things. So it was really considered a man's world. And so the fact that there are women who came up, especially women who, like Judith, didn't have our artistic training in their family. You know, her father wasn't an artist. Her brother wasn't an artist. She simply grew up and became an artist. That was really rare. And I think that kind of story is really, really fascinating. And to start off uh, to start off season three, not just with an episode about rivalries, but with an episode about rivalries that features a, a female artist, uh, kind of going back to that uh, Betty Davis, Joan Crawford uh, uh, like that you talked about earlier, maybe? Definitely. And that was something that I really wanted to do early on was I wanted to make sure that we interjected stories about women, because I want to make it clear that throughout art history, there have been women artists who have been important or have been very well known or well respected in their own time. And also their stories are just as fascinating to me as the stories of some of the bigger, more well-known male art rivals as well. Now, this episode was one of three collaborations, I believe, that you did this season with a group called Sardle. Tell us about Sardle and and how that partnership came about. I found out about them a couple of years ago. They're a website. It's sardle.com, and that's S-A-R-T-L-E.com. And they are all about seeing art history differently, which is something that I feel very strongly about and one of the reasons I wanted to start Art Curious. So art in general and art history as well has this reputation for being kind of elitist or just being something that's a little bit unattainable to the regular Joe. It's like you walk into a museum and maybe you don't see people who look just like you or maybe you feel like you don't have the educational background or a knowledge of what you're looking at if you're looking at a painting, you know, if you have a a different religious background or life story. Sometimes people feel like those are the kind of things that hold them back from understanding or even just looking or enjoying art. And I am someone who firmly believes that art is for everyone. There is art that could be enjoyed by anyone and you don't have to like everything, but I want you to look. And so Sardle has a lot of these same hopes and uh, resources to really get people to look. And it's just really fun. They have uh, some wonderful blog posts, some videos, uh, all kinds of interesting information for students of art history, for teachers of art history, and just anybody who maybe wants to go and learn something new and just uh, have a good time along the way as well. So like we said, there are uh, three episodes that were done in collaboration with Sardle this season, and uh, maybe we'll get a chance to talk about uh, those other two a little while later. But I want to move you to episode number two, 
which was now now settle a bet for me michelangelo or michelangelo <laughs> okay so uh, we say michelangelo in the u.s just because michael is sort of you know that it's the anglicized version um and also because he's the ninja turtle so i like to say michelangelo that was one of the things that was sort of beaten into you in graduate school was sort of some of the correct pronunciation um i think that's not necessarily true but that tends to be just the way that it rolls off my tongue because that was how it was repeated back to me over and over. And Raphael or Raphael? Ugh, tomato, tomato, I guess. Um, I say Raphael. Michelangelo, if I got that one right. Michelangelo mm-hmm. is uh, a name that is very hard not to know. Um, we, we, we know him from a lot of different artworks, a lot of art history, even from popular culture, like you said. And this is a guy who had more than his share of people, you know, as very well-known people do, uh, his share of people who did not like him or who found him threatening or who found him a rival. So out of all those people that you could have talked about, why choose Raphael to pit him against? I really wanted to choose somebody who I felt was almost the antithesis of Michelangelo. And I could have chosen Leonardo because they were very well-known rivals, Leonardo and Michelangelo. But I chose Raphael because sort of the situation where they were working in the exact same place at the exact same time. They were both doing these incredible one-of-a-kind projects at the Vatican at the same time for the same patron. And uh, just I found that so fascinating. And also the fact that Raphael was just this younger newcomer really that really blustered into the Vatican while Michelangelo was already at work for Pope Julius. Well I am fascinated so far by these insights into the first two episodes of season three. I can't wait to talk about uh, episodes three and four and we'll do that in just a moment after this break. We all have photos on our phones or cameras or posted to our social media accounts. But when you get that really perfect picture and you want to turn it into something real that you can see every day, posterburner.com is ready for you. It can turn all of your photos into amazing prints. So imagine walking into your room and seeing that perfect family photo or vacation picture on your wall. Or say that you need to get a perfect gift for your family or friends. There is nothing that's going to be as impressive and as meaningful as a custom print. Poster Burner is very easy to use, it's totally affordable, and the quality is truly top-notch. They make amazing posters. And when I say posters, I don't mean those flimsy posters that you see in stores. These are made on super thick premium photo paper. And you can get a 24 by 36 movie size poster for under $20. They also make custom canvas prints, metal prints, decals, stickers, banners, and so much more. So go to posterburner.com slash artcurious today and you'll get an additional 10% off your order. That discount applies to every type of print they offer. Again, that is posterburner.com slash artcurious. Welcome back to Curious Talk. We are here with Jennifer Dassel, host of Curious. Hello. And we have been talking about the first two episodes in season three, um, about uh, Judith Leister and Franz Halls, and episode two about Michelangelo and Raphael and the rivalries between those. But let's go to episode three, because I found this one particularly fascinating. Uh, Two names that uh, rung... At least one of them rung some bells with me, and it was uh, Jackson Pollock and Willem de Kooning. We were talking about modern art. 
Yeah, for me, this was really about the battle for the soul or the direction of modern art, because you had two people who were really trying to drive modern art in New York in the 1950s, and they were coming at it from different angles. So there's Jackson Pollock, who was really saying, let's eschew everything with the figure, everything with actual representation, and let's just go totally abstract. And there was Willem de Kooning, who was like, okay, well, we can do some of that, but let's also still represent life. Let's have figures. Let's have landscapes. Let's do something that we can actually recognize. It sounds like yin and yang. It's very zen. Totally. So you've got these uh, you've got these artists who have these very interesting quirks about them. Um, so can you tell me for, for each of them, maybe what was the, the weirdest or maybe the most unexpected thing you came across uh, as it related to the rivalry between them? Yeah, I think for me, it's one of those things where you gotta wonder how much Jackson Pollock was really trying to bring attention to himself while he tried to bring down Willem de Kooning. So I think about that first big solo exhibition that Willem de Kooning had where Jackson Pollock showed up and apparently said, you know, you couldn't do it, Bill. You didn't, you couldn't get past representation. You know, he really just made a public scene and called him out and said like, nope, you did it again. You're not actually doing anything great for art. And someone asked me and said, you know, how much was that actually because Jackson Pollock was trying to point back towards himself. How much was he really just hoping to bring down Willem de Kooning or how much was he just trying to make himself look more important? And maybe it was both. It could be one and the same. And I don't know the answer to that, but I really am curious just from a psychological viewpoint to know. And then I keep thinking about the fact that Willem de Kooning carried on their supposed rivalry even after Jackson Pollock died, moving into a house that was literally across the street from Jackson Pollock's grave, and then later going on to have have a long-term relationship with Jackson Pollock's mistress. And I think that's completely fascinating. And, and what a weird way to carry on a relationship with someone because a rivalry is still a relationship. Uh, and he's really just not letting that relationship go. He's not moving on. So I'm I'm the, uh, the half of your audience, uh, or, or who knows what the number is, but I'm certainly part of your audience that would call themselves a lay person when it comes to art. Um, I, I know what I know, and that's about all I know. And and along that line, Jackson Pollock's name means something to me. I picture funky lines on a canvas and cigarette butts ground into the paint. But but when we talk about Willem de Kooning, I, I kind of get a blank. Why? I think it's one of the situations of the fact that we know the big names of the artists who really shattered expectations or were the ones to really make a really strong right turn in a way that hadn't happened before. So that's why we know people like Leonardo. You know, that's why we know people like Picasso. If you don't know anything about art, which is totally fine, those are still names that you probably have heard or you've seen referenced on Looney Tunes cartoons, you know, like, you know what the Mona Lisa is, even if you don't know much else about it. And that's because those are works of art and those are artists who really broke the rules and all of a sudden made this big change. And for me, that's that's why Jackson Pollock is the bigger name than Willem de Kooning. It's because he was the first one to really pioneer these splatter paintings that we know of. And then also, you know, he had a catchy nickname, Action Jackson, and that certainly goes a long way to get people to remember you. Uh, so I think a lot of those things just combined make him a more memorable figure. And then, of course, his early death of a car accident, that always helps to have people remember you and also to hold up your, you know, your legacy a little bit more. Yeah, you, you hate to say it, but uh, find yourself a fast car and and, uh, <laughs> and die young. And, and unfortunately, uh, that's sometimes how you get remembered, I yeah. guess. James Deaning it. 
so speaking of uh, sort of living in the shadow of another, maybe as uh, as uh, Willem de Kooning does in, in at least uh, popular culture, episode four was about the wives, was about Lee Krasner and Elaine de Kooning. And I say the wives, and I don't say that um, in, in, a, in a negative way, but in, in some ways, that was what they were known as first. Am I right about that? Totally. The crazy thing, though, is that obviously, as we mentioned in the episode, both of these women had very successful, very long-lasting artistic careers. But if you know who they are, you'll know that they're famous and they're popular in their own right. But you also still are probably going to say, oh, right, Lee Krasner, she was married to Jackson Pollock. And that's the way that you get people to make the connection to who they are as historical figures. Um, and that's crazy and sad because these are rivalries that I've said that they are pitted in without them wanting to be in these rivalries. Now, they were incredible artists on their own, right? Yes, definitely. Uh, Elaine de Kooning, as I mentioned in the episode, she won a really prestigious commission to paint a portrait of none other than JFK. And JFK and his staff, they could have chosen anyone to do that. And they chose Elaine de Kooning. And what I thought was totally amazing was that they chose her even when she didn't have a lot of commission experience or a lot of portrait painting experience. But they knew that there was something special about her works and they chose her. Love it. And and, and Lee Krasner the same way, someone whose who's work uh, is very much appreciated today, but but maybe not as much at the time because of who she was married to. You know, it's really funny. She was appreciated first before Jackson Pollock. She was actually a, a more successful artist. She was running her own team when she was working for the WPA, one that even involved Jackson Pollock as one of her first employees. And she was very successful, very connected in the art world. She knew everybody. She knew how to connect to everybody. And she knew what you needed to do to advertise and market yourself as a successful artist and so when Jackson Pollock died she really felt I think this burden to carry on his legacy so she did that less for herself and her own artwork and really directed that energy and appreciation towards him not because she was any less great of an artist but just because she had to spend her time worrying about someone else's career as much as her own. Now Pollock and Krasner and de Kooning and de Kooning are Certainly an interesting set of couples, right? We got a, two episodes. We got four different artists split off into two pairs there. But they aren't the only art couples in history. There are others that you could have chosen or, or even looked at choosing, right? Yeah. And it, to be fair, in the past, I did cover Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera. I did a two-part episode about them back in season one. That was episodes, I think, 12 and 13. Great episodes. Thank you. Um, so I talk a little bit about that because for sure, Frida Kahlo, I think, really began in uh, the shadow of Diego Rivera. And she was obviously, she was far younger than Diego Rivera was. So she was a child when they first met and he was already a successful working artist. So that's somebody who's literally growing up in the shadow of one artist. But then it's funny because I look back now and I think most people in popular culture can recognize Frida Kahlo if they can't identify her by name. They at least, I think, more easily recognize her artwork than they do his. So it's really interesting how that rivalry has changed in popular culture over time as well. What other names might we recognize of, of ones that were considered along the way? Mm, I really, really, really almost did an episode about Robert Rauschenberg and Jasper Johns um, in the 1960s. They were a really fabulous couple who both created incredible works on their own. But I didn't like their relationship as much because they didn't have as much of a rivalry. They both worked very well and worked in tandem. And I think their works were appreciated 
as much as each other's. And it's just not the case with Lee Krasner and Elaine de Kooning. They were definitely seen as second tier compared to their husbands. So that's why I found that most interesting. And well, listeners, if, if there is a... Uh... Uh, not a rivalries, but a cooperation season, then then uh, feel free to request the Rauschenberg and Johns uh, episode for that, right? <laughs> we could definitely do other artists as well. We can do a whole a whole season about couples or something. <laughs> That's, that sounds good to me. Well, this is this has been fascinating talking about these first four episodes of season three. I can't wait to talk about the others in the season, but I want to make sure that we get to a, a listener question. And I think this one came from Instagram, from at drumgirl on Instagram, am mm-hmm. I right? That's right. And she says, of all the episodes in all the seasons, that'd be all three seasons, what has been your favorite episode to create thus far and why? Oh my gosh. It's so hard for me to choose just one because they're all like my babies. But I would say that my very first one was probably my absolute favorite to create just because I personally thought it was a weird story. Uh, This was about the Mona Lisa and the fact that she was stolen multiple times, uh, not just once, and was, you know, did the Nazis steal her? Did the Nazis steal a fake? There's this whole con that's going on afterwards. And then again, is the Mona Lisa that's on view of the Louvre a fake or is it the real deal? This was something that I thought was really fascinating and um, just digging into that. And I read whole books just about the Mona Lisa and I just found it totally engaging. I hope that listeners do as well. This season, I would probably say that if I was going to choose one from season three, um, I'd say I'm probably wavering back and forth between Michelangelo and Raphael and also Turner and Constable, which we can hopefully talk about next time because that story is just this one moment of such supreme drama and I loved it. Well, any story that involves art theft and uh, 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 forgeries and the Louvre, I, I think is is certainly one uh, that's going to be fun to do. And of all the episodes this season, uh, yeah, the... Uh, the ones you were talking about are going to be great to get into next time. And uh, that's what we're going to do. So we're going to take a, a little break for a couple of weeks, but we will be back with more Curious Talk. And we'll talk about the second half of season three, maybe even get a sneak peek at season four. Is there going to be a season four? There is already a season four in the works. Oh, you heard it right here, folks. Season four coming. So make sure you tune in to Curious Talk next time to hear more about that. And I want to say thank you, Jennifer, for sitting down and giving us more insight into these fabulous stories that you bring us. Keep doing it. Thanks for talking to me. And thank you to everybody for listening. Josh Dassel with Kabunki here with Jennifer Dassel of Art Curious. You keep listening and we'll stay curious.